0: coming in June. Hi, it's Dr. G. And after two plus years and about 140 episodes of hosting the Menopause Movement podcast, I've had a revelation. You know, this podcast is about more than just menopause. We talk about mindset, building wealth, creating habits, discussing life hacks, and so much more. So it's time to move forward from menopause and into being more. As you've probably heard me say many times, menopause is not a medical condition that requires treatment. It's the privilege of a long life and it gives us the opportunity to launch something new. To that end, I wanna help in more ways than just menopause. Welcome to the Launch Your Life with Dr. G Podcast. It's the only mindset podcast that provides weekly actionable insights for lasting happiness and change specifically created for high achieving professionals who are ready to bounce back and prevent burnout. We're still going to have awesome guests. We'll still talk about the menopause things that, that women want to know about, but we're going to focus on mindset Now, why you might be asking. You know, because we live our entire lives in our minds, and the faster and more efficiently we can make it a happy place, the better our lives will be. Life is a series of adventures, and we can launch our next phase and create 1% improvements together. I'm honored to be on this journey with you. And I can't wait to bring you all of the awesome guests for this new podcast. Hey, it's Dr. Michelle Gordon, and thanks so much for being a part of the Menopause Movement Podcast, and welcome back. So we have Stephanie Davis this week, and she is an Enneagram expert, and we're going to find out what the Enneagram is, what to your type might be, and the general characteristics of each type. She has a website called successstyle.com. And you can go there to take the Enneagram test at the end of the podcast. She's been doing the Enneagram for about 30 years. She works with corporations primarily, and we're so lucky to have her here. Learning more about the Enneagram can help us so much with self discovery, and menopause is such a time of self discovery that I was super excited to talk to her about it today. Now, we're gonna learn this week that there are nine Enneagram types, that the Enneagram is truly a mathematical symbol, that there's a law of three and a law of seven, and that there's forces that help to give us the self-discovery that we need to understand our subconscious programming. It's really fascinating stuff. Now, at the end of the episode, make sure you visit our, our website, drmichellegordon.com slash podcasts. Don't forget the S on the end. You can find the show notes and any the links that we uh, mentioned with Stephanie Davis. Also, if you enjoy this episode, please make sure you subscribe so you are always the first to know when a new episode is released. Now... Thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement podcast. Now let's head on over to the interview with Stephanie Davis and learn all about the Enneagram. So welcome back to the menopause movement podcast today. I'm joined by Stephanie Davis. Hi, Stephanie. How are you? Hi, how are you? I'm good. It's beautiful where you are. Yeah, that's my backyard. It's kind of ah, a nice, awesome. crisp, crisp fall day. I want to understand, you are an expert in the Enneagram. Yes. Among other things. You have many expertises I've seen. But I think, I think today we should just focus on the Enneagram. And uh, number one, I think we should start with what is it? So the
1: Enneagram is a very deep dive into what makes you tick. So unlike most personality systems, which usually have kind of like a cluster of preferences or behaviors, um, the Enneagram really goes way mm-hmm. deeper than behavior, which is why it's hard to test for. There's tons of you know free tests all over the place. There's a whole bunch of paid tests. There's no accurate Enneagram test because... Nobody really knows what's deep inside there unless they've gone through, you know, tons of psychoanalysis or something and they've really been introspecting for many, many years. Most people are not really aware of the wiring that's making them tick. And so when they, so Enneagram tests have to test for behaviors or things that are statistically tend to go with one type or another, but that's not definitive. So any type could do any behavior and any um you know because you do a particular thing or you like a particular thing does not exclude an enneagram type nor does it make you an enneagram type so that's where all the confusion comes from because people think it's like personality types where you know if you fit this this and this then you go into that box right really what it is is it's nine different egoic structures so when you're very very little some say you're born you know, with your Enneagram type, at least your temperament. And then very, very early on, your psyche makes decisions about what the world is about and what you're going to need to do in order to be loved and to survive in this world. And those very core decisions form your egoic structure. And so it's nine different egoic structure types.
0: (laughs) Why did I think there were 12? I thought it was like a Zodiac.
1: No, and a lot of people, because the Enneagram uh, is numbers, you know, there's type one, type two, type yeah. three, people think it has something to do with numerology as well, which it does not. It has okay. absolutely nothing to do with numerology. The nine positions on the Enneagram symbol just needed to be named something. They could have been named e ba you know, but somebody <laughs> just said one, two, three, four, five, and so those positions don't mean anything numerically. Like 9 okay. is not higher than 8 in some way or lesser than. There's nothing nothing significant to the fact that there's numbers attached to it. Other than that the entire symbol is actually um, mathematical. I mean, the whole Enneagram is actually a symbol that dates back to Pythagoras, at least. Okay. And wow. they, they, they keep finding more and more and more ancient roots to the, to the symbol and a lot of the historical roots of the Enneagram. But um, the modern Enneagram only came about, you know, since about the 70s, the, the, the Enneagram of personality, as most of us call it, um, that has only been around since the 70s. But the symbol that the Enneagram is based on um, is, ha, has been used to map anything. So the circle, the outside circle represents the infinity where there is no separation. And then there's a triangle, which represents the law of three, which is the law that causes anything to come into formation. Nothing be, nothing gets created without the law of three. And then the law of seven um, is the hexad symbol inside there. So it's three different symbols overlaid on top of each other. The hexad comes from the law of seven, which is a law which governs how things play out. So like from the time it's created till the time it recycles to another birth or something, how something plays out is governed by the law of seven. So that's a long, complicated story we don't need to get into, but it's very significant that the symbol um, represents these forces, the force going around the circle, the force going around the triangle, and the force going across the hexad. And that's how you know where everything has to sit. So they used the Enneagram symbol to map anything, you could use it to map baking a cake, you can use it to map organizational development processes and companies, you can use it to map anything. But in order to use it to map something, you have to divide the something into the nine elements and then you have to figure out where would they have to sit because all of the energy has to work. So there has to be a natural clockwise flow, there has to be a natural flow on the triangle and the triangle has to have a special relationship with the circle. Those are the, the three shock points where reality hits p- potentiality. And then this, the hexad has to work out to where one, four, two, eight, five, seven, one, four, two, eight, five, seven, one, four, two, eight, five, seven repeats, which is the law of entropy. So you'd have to figure out the nine elements, place them around the circle and see if those patterns worked. So that's what happened in the 70s. Um, Oscar Echazo, a psychoanalyst, took psychology, took ego development, And he mapped it using the Enneagram. And so that's where we got the personality, the Enneagram of personality that we all know now is that he figured out where these nine egoic dilemmas, if you will, needed to sit in relationship to one another on that diagram. And that's how we ended up with those nine types. So the the spots are significant, but the fact that they're numerically
0: labeled is, is not really significant. I got it. Okay. So for somebody who's never heard of the Enneagram and I think that's a lot of people because I only heard of it just last year. It's the first time I ever heard of it. Um, can you give a bit, I mean, that's, I know you just gave us a basic overview, but can you give us a a little bit more about what kind of self discovery we can get from taking an Enneagram test and maybe a resource for one of the best ones that's going to give us the most information.
1: Sure. So what you can get from learning the Enneagram is a perpetual self-busting machine. <laughs> I paid a lot of money in the, you know, a while back to an organization that puts you through these weekend events. And, you know, in that event, you learn something about you already always listening that's kind of behind the scenes running everything and you didn't realize it was really doing that and you walk away from there you know people people declare life-changing you know insights from having been able to bust themselves it's like when you take a fish out of water and let them see the water they've been swimming in they never realized it before because it was everything it was clouded you know water was all they knew and so To me, you could save yourself a whole lot of money not going through those kinds of programs, not that I'm saying don't, but that's a lot of effort for one weekend worth of value. Whereas with the Enneagram, the minute you learn your Enneagram type and you really see and study the, the patterns that they're talking about, the first response you'll have is, well, I think I'm a number, whatever, let's say you think you're a three, I think I'm a three, but, and you're gonna say, I don't do, and you're going to say all kinds of things that they attributed to three. And you're going to say, I don't do any of that. And then as you go through your day and you go through your life, all of a sudden you're going to say, oh, my gosh, I do do that. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I mean, suddenly your entire life becomes this kind of like unveiling of you being able to see what you couldn't see before about yourself. And so all of your relationships suddenly become like a Petri dish. <laughs> all of <laughs> your, your job, your marriage, your children, everything becomes this massive unveiling of um, not only your own motives, but even other people's motives and things like that. So it, it's very addicting, actually. You're you're gonna end up kind of going down this rabbit hole of really seeing things about yourself that you never realized. And
0: so the just, growth just- Go ahead. Yeah. I just want to ask a a clarifying question. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is that by taking the Enneagram test and getting a number say, or two numbers often is what, what we get, somebody can get a peek into the subconscious programming that's moving their, that's, that's like really moving their lives. Right. So maybe why they have certain behaviors, um, you know, for me, it's like uh, the the only thing that I've not been able to be successful at in my life uh, over the past ten years is weight loss, and um, I've had spurts where I've been able to lose weight, and then I'll just go right back, and that that to me is very frustrating because I have the motivation and I have the desire, but I don't have the behavior, and um, and I think that I mean I on the Enneagram I'm an eight slash one. Or a one slash eight, depending on which one I take. And um, what I find very fascinating about that is that as I've as I've grown over the last year, I've learned that the only way that I'm ever going to get a change in my life is if I start acting like that person now, even before I actually have the results I want. I have to be that person. So the the so I guess the, the more clarifying question for me is. Once we get a peek into the underlying subconscious kind of automatic behaviors, does taking the Enneagram and understanding it help people to actually modify their behaviors in a way that is more positive?
1: Um, presumably. I mean, obviously people are only going to change to the level that they want to change. And a lot of people will just learn the Enneagram and, you know, use it as a parlor game or whatever, but people who really want to take it on people who really want to make changes in their lives, I think will find great help with the Enneagram because all roads seem to lead back to your, what's called passion and fixation. So, um, let me, let me explain that in the Enneagram, one of the roots of the Enneagram goes back to Gurdjieff, who's an ancient philosopher, not that ancient, but anyway, he talks about how there's three parts to everybody. There's, you have the head, you have a heart, and you have a gut, right? So you have your, you have your mental, you have your emotional, and you have your gut instinct. And so the Enneagram, what makes you your type is really how you are, I'm going to say messed up in those three areas, so that's the that's the signature. So the enneagram is really nine ways of being messed up. Okay, <laughs> let's let's just cut to the chase here. When mm-hmm. you're an enneagram type, it's not a good thing. Okay, but so so very specifically, there's nine different signatures of how those three things get distorted, and um, so each of the types, as a little child, develops a fixation, which is how you're mentally distorted, and a passion. And unfortunately, that word has a positive context in modern context in modern day, but in the Enneagram terms, it's a it's an emotional distortion is okay. what it's technically called your passion in the Enneagram. So your fixation and your passion are how you're messed up emotionally and mentally. And then your subtype, what, what people call your subtype in the Enneagram, they'll say you're either a self-preservation, a social, or a sexual number Eight or number one, right? So they say that's your subtype. So you're a sexual one or a social one or se- self-press one. What that means is that the sexual or social or self-press instinct is the one that got the most distorted. So again, it's the, that's the way you're instinctually uh, messed up. So, so those are the three things: passion, fixation, and your uh, subtype. Those are the three things. So within each of the nine types, the little child made a decision and um had to close off a part of themselves so let's just start i I don't know if i should start with
0: nine or start with one or start with eight um i mean we can we can talk about i mean i'm i'm really kind of an open book so we can talk a little bit about me and you know unfortunately i don't have my results to share with you other than i took the test that is associated with the book uh, the road back to you and you know whether that's a valid test or not i don't know but it was free what did you pay for it no Oh, then that's a different test. Uh, there is no, um, well,
1: anyway, it, yeah, that's fine. Um, let's talk about you. You say that you come out either as an eight or a
0: one. Yeah, so, depending, but, on, depending on which, which day I take it. And, and it, what is very interesting, so if you, um, you're also an expert in the Myers-Briggs, right?
1: Not as much, but yeah. I know it,
0: yeah. So, so what's very interesting for me is that depending on the day when I take the Myers-Briggs, I'm either an INFJ or an ENTJ. Interesting. Right. Um,
1: Well, the thing about the Myers-Briggs, and I'm not gonna, I don't want to speak to the Myers-Briggs, is that they do say that your Myers-Briggs can change. Okay. Um, And I I know for me, like I'm an E-N-X-P because the F and the T, you cannot ever make one higher than the other on me, no matter what. And socionics people go crazy with me on that, but it's like, I, I just, there is no one higher than the other on my F and my T. But that's that gives me a little bit of insight as to your enneagram type to a certain degree. There's yeah. there's some correlation, not not exact. Um, theoretically, any enneagram type could be any Myers Briggs type, but there is again correlations. So let's talk about you. But in order to do that, let me go to the the three um, triads of the enneagram because you're in one of the triads for sure. Okay. So the triads are gut, heart, and head. Even though we each have our own heart, head, and gut. Every single person has all three. Within the Enneagram, three of the nine types are what we call gut types. They are in the gut triad. That's the eight, nine, and one. Those three at the top, those are the the gut types. And then two, three, and four are the heart types. And the five, six, and seven are the head types. And so they're sitting on the circle in the area where there's a particular issue that's much more important than all other issues to those types. So the gut types, it's all about boundary. It's all about being a body in a skin with potential positions and enemies and vulnerabilities and barriers and boundaries. And it's all about sort of like the black and the white, where's the line, where's the boundary, what's, what's, what's in, what's out, what's accepted, what's not, what's friend, what's foe, what's black, what's white. So eight, nine, and one all have that kind of deep orientation about having kind of a gut, a gut reaction to the world. And so the key emotion involved in that is anger. Now, within each of the triads, there's a key emotion. And each, uh, within the three types, one will sort of like just overdo it, one will sort of underdo it, and another one has a really weird relationship with it. So with anger, eight is the type who will have no problem doing anger. Yep, do anger, done next n- no big deal like like nothing no problem with anger like just they can get angry they can be angry and then they're not angry and that's fine and they don't have any issues around it you know yeah. like, like it's, it's very bold and out there right one one on the nine on the other hand completely wants to deny anger. Nine doesn't want to be angry ever. Nine wants to be peaceful and calm and never acknowledge anger. So they just become like a tea bag where everything flows through them and they just, you know, they they might be passive aggressive, but they for the most part almost never you know like cause conflict or be involved in conflict they want to they want to forget boundaries they're like can't we all just get along that's the peacekeeper the harmony so they're right in the heart of the anger triad sort of denying that anger and separation exists and then the one is the one that takes it to almost an intellectual level and becomes kind of like the keeper of the rules so the one decides that the world, there's right and there's wrong and there's good and there's bad and you're supposed to be good. And so we're all supposed to be good and we're all supposed to be improving and getting better. That's the whole purpose of life is betterment. And so they focus on anger kind of from a judgment perspective. And so they're the ones who have that as a fixation. They're the ones who have it as a problem. A's don't have it as a problem, even though they might do it more often. They don't have a problem with it ones, they feel guilty for being angry because they want to be good people, but they're angry all the time because they're judging all the wrong that's going on. And so, and they want to stuff it. They don't want to be angry. So they have this very difficult relationship with anger because they have a lot of it, but they don't want to have it. And, you know, they can't, they can't deal very effectively with it. So eight, nine, and one are all gut types. And you're saying that you've come out either as an eight or a one. Yeah. Test. So we know that you're an assertive type. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a surgeon. <laughs> um, and and so, so the differences um, between eight and one, the, the most obvious difference is eights, have no problem at all being a bad guy you know like they they kind of even sort of like that you know being the rebel being the one you know on the back of the harley coming in and just being you know like born to be bad you know they're like yeah like they have almost an affinity to being the outcast the bad one um no problem at all the one wants to be the good one the one wants to be good wants to
0: be seen as good and that kind of explains all my conflict
1: (laughs) One is horrified at being seen as bad, you know they don't want to be bad, they want to be good um, so that 's a huge difference. But the other difference is that eight is the most just raw, honest truth telling Let the chips fall where they may um, you know they don't they don't sort of convert themselves to society. Um, they just sort of are who they are and so now let 's talk about this deep psychic wiring the little eight, as a little, little tiny child, decided that the world is about power. There are people who have power, people who do not have power. Power can be hurtful, power can be abused. And so the eight decides two things. One is I will be, um, I will vigilantly watch over the power and I will try to make sure that the power is right in every situation. Now, sometimes that means I wanna have the power, but sometimes it just, if, if power is in place that's okay, the eight's fine with that. But if power is being abused, if power is being used against genuine victims, eights you know, want to take out that power. They want to they want to equalize that, they want to fix that. They want they're 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 very vigilante, you know, in, in wanting for people not to be abusing other people. Like you should not be abusing power. But the more core decision that's made by the little eight is I will never be vulnerable. I will always be powerful. And so nobody will be able to hurt me. Nobody will be able to control me. I will not be vulnerable. And that decision is underpinning everything in the eight's life. And rediscovering the innocence that's being protected under there is the lifelong journey for the eight. You know, really getting in touch with that soft, innocent um, little being that doesn't have to puff itself up and be you know falsely strong for its entire life you know that's the that's the battle for the rest of the life because once that hardening takes place then it becomes very difficult for the eight to ever um you know enter that chamber it's it, that's what gets shut off if you will is that innocence and so that's the journey that's the situation of the eight and what eights will find when they know the enneagram is even when you don't think that that little storyline is running the show you know, upon deep analysis, it's like all roads lead back to that—that that lack of vulnerability. All roads lead back to that—that—that that, that eschewing of the innocence.
0: Yeah. Uh, so that's the storyline of the eight. Well, that, that's that's really—I mean, it's really interesting because you know I had Deirdre Fay on the on the on the podcast uh, not too long ago, and and uh, as you probably know, Deirdre's all about um, psychological triggers and uh, finding safe spaces and that sort of thing. And we talked a little bit about my history. And, um, you know, there's a whole year of my life I don't remember. And I think, I don't think I'll ever get those memories. I think my, my brain actually s- secreted chemicals to, like, obliterate them. Um, and there's, there's, like, horrendous, horrible sexual abuse in my childhood. So it all makes sense when you say that I'm an eight and then I don't want to be vulnerable. And that plagued me a really long time. It caused problems in my surgical residency. It caused problems in all of my relationships. And it wasn't until um, discovering meditation, actually, uh, and starting to get into you know, more of a vulnerable space with myself and trying to contact the subconscious mind that I've been able to even manage you know, that lack of vulnerability. Um, there's also a portion of me that is just very analytical. And I think almost like a computer. And so it's very hard for me to understand some social cues or um, um, understanding, you know, some certain nuances of relationship or it can be very difficult for me. And I've acknowledged that. (laughs) I mean, it can can be troubling for my marriage. (laughs) But but I'm honest about it. So so that's just a little background. Um, that, that helps, it helps me to understand a little bit, you know, why, why I identify more as an eight, even if, even if the numbers say that I'm more of a one, but I,
1: and there's really, you have to understand there are no accurate Enneagram tests that at the very most, even the, even the most expensive Enneagram tests, the maximum that it can do is give you a starting point of like where to look. Um, because we pick up our behaviors from parents, we pick them up from social expectations. We pick them up from all over the place. Um, and this particular wiring sort of can't be asked about in a test, you know, like it just doesn't work. So the tests are proxies. Um, but let me talk about one for a minute, just to see how you resonate with that. So the little tiny one got a really strong sense of wrong you know, like wrong, like bad, like you are wrong, you are bad, like you're going to be punished to hell, kind of a, a sense of wrongness, you know, that, that sense that we are corrupt, if you will. Somehow the, the little one got, in, got a sense of that and just got really, really um, built around that and said, I will always be good. I will know what is right and what is wrong. And I will be right. I will be good. I will be the good boy. I will be the angel. You know, not the devil. I'm going to be on the right side. And, um, and so the whole life, you know, gets created around making sure that they know what is the right side, that they stand for the right side, that they work on the right side, that they, you know, stick with the right side. And so they become very guarded against ever being wrong or corrupt. And let me just go back to the eight for a second or kind of do both here. But so we end up with kind of a shadow or sort of like a sensitivity that we're not really that aware of. It, it skews our reality. So with the eight, the eight's going to skew reality in thinking that there's way more enemies than there actually are. <laughs> or yeah. there's, way more, there's way more opposition than is actually going on. Or there's way more you know abusive power than is actually going on. The eight will skew that way. The one will skew the way of feeling like there's way more wrong happening, there's way more bad going on. And the the one becomes very defended against criticism, because the one has done everything in their power to make sure at every moment in time that they couldn't possibly be doing anything wrong. And so for criticism to come in, it's like a shock. It's like, is that even possible? You know, like, like they have a little slave driver, they have the worst inner critic, of anyone. You know, they've got this little slave driver on their shoulder just telling them that they're a, an idiot and a schmuck and you know, not doing good enough. Like day in and day out, they're beating themselves. They're very, very self-disciplined and self, um, almost hateful. So the road for the one is to open up to the idea that maybe they don't have their hands on the big rule book in the sky. <laughs> maybe, maybe that inner, that inner voice that they're hearing, that inner critic is actually just a psychological mechanism that's tormenting them and that they don't have to give it so much credence and that they can ease up and that they can, they can, they can not listen to that so much and that they can, you know, like getting out from under the tyranny of that is the lifelong goal is the lifelong journey of the one because it's just so real to them and they, and to them, it really is the, Rule book in the sky it's not like they, they don't think that they made it up they don't right. think that they're judging other people they think they're just trying to help all of us not be judged by the rules you
0: know <laughs> yeah so, so that's, that's interesting because in my in my program um, the very first homework I give to the people who join the program is to pay attention to their inner voice and just write down what they're hearing every hour and we don't talk about any Enneagram but we do we do talk about what to do with that but just to kind of become aware that there's another voice inside your head and that maybe that's not you right you now and right. so that's but let's let's continue so um so we've gone through 8 and 1 i think we should just kind of go through if you don't mind if we could just yeah, go through so, all so of so them so the
1: little 9 the little 9 decided that the world was very like chaotic and discordant like like the 9 is affected by the disharmony So all of the stuff going on and, and, and the nine just sort of holds back and decides not to show up. The nine says, you know, it's like, there's so much sort of like separation and, and problem and chaos and whatever going on in the world. I think I won't add to that. And so the nine really never develops a very concrete ego. The nine just decides to be an untype and to just go along to get along and, you know, just be the one who just, you know, goes along. (laughs) And so they never, uh, they never show up with a concrete position. And in a way this kind of mimics spiritual bypass because a lot of people see nines and they say, wow, you know, they're just so naturally, um, you know, non-upset, and they forgive, and they they want peace, and they don't they don't have all these weird things going on that everybody else does, and so they think the nines are somehow like enlightened, but the problem is that the nine didn't show up like with an ego to then detach from the ego to then be enlightened. They just sort of, as an egoic move, decided not to show up. And, and there's this very, very strong passive-aggressive, I'm not you know, F you going on in there that's sort of like, you know, heck no, I won't go. You can't affect me. I'm, I'm this rock in the stream. And you guys all think I'm just peaceful and all that kind of stuff because I'm just going to keep everything all tightly in here like this and just going to go through life. In that. So what the nine has to give up by being the un-type is really being able to really know their own feelings, know their own goals, know their own wishes, their desires. Um, you know, they, they, they sort of haven't formed themselves. So everybody just plants in their field, you know, like they don't, they don't plant their own corn. So everybody else will just plant wheat or tomatoes or whatever they want. And the nine just kind of lives vicariously through everyone else. So the journey for the nine is to wake up and actually show up And it takes a lot of courage because to the nine, you know, they feel like if they show up, then they're going to be in opposition to people. It's going to be separation. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be all those things that they cannot, they think they cannot handle. And um, so it's quite a, quite a journey of courage for them to really stand up and say, this is who I am. This is what I want. This is what I want to do. And even if that's in opposition to other people. So that's the journey for the nine. Okay. So the one, I mean, sorry, the twos, threes, and fours are our heart types. And that's a little bit of a misnomer because in today's day and age, when people talk about the heart, oftentimes they're actually talking about spirituality or something. So we're actually talking about um, social relationship dynamics here when we say the heart types. Twos, threes, and fours, their overarching issue is shame their overarching issue is, am I going to be accepted or am I going to be rejected by people? You know, like like how I fit in, whether I'm loved or not, whether I'm approved of or not, is all important to the two, three, and four, how they are seen by other people. And there's a whole lot of other background in the Enneagram that talk about how these different phases might've come about in psychological development so they think that with the twos threes and fours something about how they were seen you know by their caretakers probably was was the issue but nevertheless they have a social um focus and so the twos threes and fours each have a different one the little two decided that the way that you get accepted and loved in the world is to basically be indispensable be someone's best friend. Be their best helper. Be their most just become totally indispensable to people. And so they could have written the book How to Win Friends and Influence People. Any two could write that book yeah. because they know how to compliment. You know their their um, passion becomes um, flattery. You know they know how to just get anybody to be really excited to know them because they know how to just get in there and start complimenting and building people up. You know, they know how to give people confidence and give them praise and give them flattery and give them gifts and give them favors and all those kinds of things. So they become very well liked for all that they do for people. The problem with that is that they secretly in the back of their mind know or believe to themselves that they're singing for their supper. I mean, twos, threes, and fours all kind of believe I have to sing for my supper. I have to earn, you know, approval. And so the two believes that if they were ever not able to help and compliment and build up people and stuff, that they would be utterly rejected and loveless. And that would be absolutely death because the two, more than any of the types, loves love. The two wants to be loved. The two wants to be loved. They do not want to be rejected. That's like their kryptonite. Yeah. And so they, they're, they kind of get into the groove of helping everyone. And the two is an interesting type because more than any of the other Enneagram types, they're kind of in a, a little bit of a delusion about themselves. They believe that they just help because they like to help. They do not believe or have a tie in they don't they don't notice that they're doing it in order to potentially be loved and to survive in the world they think that it's free They, they think that they're like unconditionally loving what so what they have to do is they have to start to tap into and notice how actually it's not unconditional at all actually they have these deep inner contracts going on and they deeply believe that by doing this it will earn them this and they start to see that most of the relationship problems that they have in life are tied to the fact that they're not even acknowledging that they kind of had one of those contracts going on but other people can feel it everybody else can feel it but the two doesn't know they're doing it the okay. two thinks that they're unconditional when other people are like feeling like some hooks in there and <laughs> stuff and so it, it so there's a whole lot of delusion that goes on in the twos world and their journey with the enneagram is starting to see that and starting to get in touch with the little starving little person or, or let's say let's say dying of thirst it, A two is like someone who's dying of thirst who's standing on the line at a at one of those marathons handing out water to everyone they're dying of thirst, but they're handing out water to everyone. And and so the two has to recognize what it's like to actually drink water themselves to completely self-nurture. They need to they need to get in touch with what that's about. And they need to recognize that a lot of times this giving of the water is because secretly they're hoping that someone will give water to them. And un- uncovering that whole thing. Um, the after, once, once a two goes through the shock of the whole thing, it's usually a pretty, pretty easy journey after that. I wouldn't say easy, but I mean, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward journey after that. But that original delusion that they go through is quite shocking for twos when they come to the Enneagram. And then the threes. So the three is the most obvious image type. Threes typically want to be seen as successful. And they want to be seen as productive and pragmatic and successful and get it done and win. They're very, very competitive. They always, they're always thinking about winning because they want to be number one. Not just like they don't just want to be liked. They want to have beaten everybody else to get there. <laughs> you know, like, like they want to be seen as better than um, other people, superior. Yeah. Uh, they want to be admirable. They actually want to get applause from, from an audience. They want to be socially above. You know that's that's what the three is all about. Now, I haven't gotten into the subtypes in these nine, and I don't really think we probably have time in in this. But I'll just mention here, so you can imagine it's true for the other types as well: the self, pres, social, and sexual three show up very differently. So a self president three is not going to be so imagey, showy. They're not going to be wearing the fancy clothes and wanting to be seen. You know, they're more like trying to unearth or trying to create a legacy. They want to have bank accounts and, and, and you know, they, they're, they're doing it all kind of behind the scenes as a self-preservation thing. They're not coming across as so showy. Social threes want to have all the awards. They want all the accolades and the applause and so forth. And sexual threes want to be the perfect specimen of uh, masculine or the perfect specimen of a feminine. So they're gonna be the really showy, like like put me on the cover of a magazine because of how I look. You know, a sexual three would be more prone to that. Social three would be more prone to, you know, prestige and position. And a a self-pres three will be more prone to building an empire whether people know about it or not. Um, But threes all want that external. So what's the journey of the three? The little three decided that in order to be loved and to survive, I need to be somebody. And be somebody means do something. And so they become a little human doing, not a human being. They that they just like from a very early age don't even care what they feel, what they think, what they want, who they are. It's just who do I need to be? Who do I need to be? What do I need to do? So what's the role? What's the goal? I'm on it. And it works really, really well. Threes don't usually come to the Enneagram until they've had some massive collapse or something, massive breakdown of their whole structure, because it works really well. Like a, you know, they like just, a
0: life-threatening illness, for example.
1: Life-threatening illness, major failure, total public humiliation, loss of everything, you know, something like that. Yeah. And You know, because otherwise they just kind of look at it and they're like, and why would I want to do that? You know, like, like, how would that help me? You know, they don't see how discovering their inner truth or, you know, how they really feel. They don't really know what that has to do with anything because what's the role? What's the goal? I'm on it. And personal feelings and stuff like that. It's like, I don't know. That just sounds like a big detraction. They don't, they don't really get that. And so when a three comes to a place where they start to honor and realize that they actually, there's a person in there, not just the role, not just, not just whatever they chose to be, but there might be something inside there that actually had some kind of identity or reality prior to the roles. And when they start to embrace that and and look at that, that's a very interesting journey for the threes. And like, to me, one of the best, three stories was I have a friend who was very famous and he went through a very public collapse and he literally believed that nobody would ever love him again and he truly believed that like he didn't want to go outside of his house like he totally could not believe that he would ever be accepted again and when we finally got him out into the public and everybody you know embraced him and was you know you know it was like the most Uh, You know, it's like, it's very tear jerking for me, because for him to actually even think that it would be possible that people loved him for who he was, just, just because, and not because he was this famous, rich, you know, but, but, but just because was such a revelation to him, like a thought that he could have never allowed himself to have in his lifetime. And so it's kind of like a house of cards that the threes are sitting on. As long as they're succeeding, they got great self-esteem. But in, inside is the deepest fear of them all that really I'm nothing. And I have to keep keep succeeding in order to be something. No. And when they can just unhook that and realize that, guess what? You're actually something without doing anything. That's such a revelation for threes. Um, it's, it's, I, love, I love it when threes find that. You know, It's, it's very, uh, like you can see, tear jerking for me. But anyway, that's the journey of the three. The four. The four is also an image type, but they sort of like gave it up right from the beginning. They sort of decide, I have been rejected, I have been abandoned, I am not accepted by society and it's because I'm so different. And so the four has this difference um, and it has a two-sided feeling to it. On the one hand, they feel like I'm so special. And they're very proud of that. I'm special. You know, I have taste. I'm unique. I'm, you know, they they, they like their specialness. On the other hand, they can feel very defective. And they can just, they can just self, they have more self-loathing than other types, you know, reportedly they, they, they can feel so defective and so different in ways that are just like, you know, that hideous hunchback monster or something, you know? So they go from feeling I'm so special and better than everybody to I'm so defective. What's wrong with me? And their fixation and passion have to do with envy and longing. So it's not that they're jealous, like they don't want what you have. Um, that would just be too uncouth. They, but they, but they have almost a, almost a hateful, energized envy, which is fueled by a pain that they don't have. What would make them happy? They don't have what would make their life complete. So it's like there's this missing piece. There's this deep pain. There's this horrible wounding that they're living with, and it'll never be fixed. And they hate that. So when they see um, happiness and, you know, love and all kinds of different things going on out there, they can feel a very painful kind of an envy and a longing, wondering, why me? You know, why not me? You know, like, what's wrong with me? So they're kind of a tortured soul to a certain extent. And again, the three subtypes will be very different. The self-pres for does doesn't ever really show that so they're not walking around being obviously wounded. They are more like long suffering, they're holding it in. The social four is the one who's kind of like publicly wailing all the time. And the sexual four is a very, (laughs) <laughs> a very passionate character <laughs> who has a lot of anger and a lot of rage and a lot of, uh, Claudio Naranjo once said, if you ever see a woman up on the third floor throwing the man's clothes out onto the street, you know, she, she goes, there's, that's a sexual foreign. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of, there's a lot of passion in a sexual four. Yeah, but the fours, the fours bring us um, so much of the beauty in the world. The fours go where the rest of us are just too scared to go. You know, they go into the depths of emotions and they pull out the, the best of beauty and, and, you know, uh, Introspection, you know, on steroids. like they really are able and capable of going into emotions and holding empathy and compassion and really getting into the depths of the human um, experience, you know, in ways that most of the other types don't don't dare do. Right. So they bring a lot to the world. And their journey is to just recognize that they really aren't so special. And that's that's twofold. You know, on the one hand, it's like you're not so special this way, but then guess what? You're not defective either. And they they need to come to what's called equanimity and, and recognizing sort of like the fairness of all human lives and and stop doing this comparison thing so much. They need to get off the comparison teeter-totter and just really start to dive in and love their life, you know, and themselves as not this somehow very very different defective person right. but just start to recognize themselves as as a as a human again uh, it's it's very heartwarming to watch them discover all of that if for for all the types you know when you can just drop that what seems so important life quest and and start to live more moment to moment it's like wow <laughs> then all of the gifts of your type are still there it's like you don't have to give up any of your strengths and the weaknesses are a lot easier to deal with, you know, you don't take them so seriously and the gifts of all the other types start to become available because the Enneagram, if you look at it as a psychological scale, you know, basically you can have really, really psychologically bereft nine types and then you can have really psychologically sound nine types and Riso and Hudson talk about that as the levels of health. So when somebody is a very healthy, functioning Type X, it's not that easy to tell what type they are. Like they actually have a lot of the gifts of a lot of the types, and they can seem like a lot of it, you know, like it's not that easy to see what type they are. The more sort of unhealthy they are, (laughs) the harder it, I mean, the easier it is to see their type because it's on full display. But so when you start to loosen your fixation and loosen your passion and balance your instincts, then what happens is you become a full human. Like all nine of the things that we talk about when we talk about the strengths of the nine types are available to everybody. Like those are just parts of being human and all of those strengths become available to you. So the goal is never to switch types. You don't switch types. That would be like Sybil, you know, like multiple personality. <laughs> yeah. You don't switch types. The goal is to loosen the illusions of your own type.
0: Did and you when talk you about it, seven
1: Nope, I, had, I just did two, three, four. So we got to do five, six, seven. Five, six, oh, seven. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, the five, six, seven are the head types. Um, but I'm just trying to tell you that that you 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 pick up a lot of what people see. Like if people see healthy threes as successful, goal oriented. Yeah. If you stopped being a self-loathing four and you became you were able to do a lot more things and be a lot more successful. It's not that like you became a three. You just, you just stopped blocking the strength that threes naturally pick up because of their weakness. You know, it's, it's like we all pick something and it makes us pick one strength over all the others. It gives us a weakness. But anyway, our goal is to just be all nine at, at their
0: healthiest. You know, that's really the goal.
1: So five, six, six, six. Wait, seven, wait, wait, back,
0: wait, 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 wait. Our yeah. goal is to embody all nine. Of at the high side. The, what's that? The high side. The high side. So we want the, we we don't want the shadow side. We want the high side of all night. Because when you're talking about, like, I identified with quite a few of the, you know, especially the three. I identify a lot with the three. I was very competitive as a child. I always wanted to be better than everyone. You know, when I, when I, I've I've got this story that I tell about some boy visiting and we lived on a cul-de-sac and I had just gotten new shoes and they were red. I think they were red. And I said to him, I said, I just got new shoes. I can run faster than you. He says, Your shoes don't make you fast. I said, You want to make it? one want to bet. I'll race you to the end. And man, I, be, I I had to go so fast but I beat that kid by this much. And it was a boy, you know. And I and and then I, you know, unfortunately didn't didn't pursue that as as a kid. You know, didn't pursue uh, sports. I went another direction. But um, but it was it's just interesting that you know I, you talk about competitiveness of the three, and I I've, I'm very competitive and that sort of thing, so.
1: But the thing is that any of the nine types could do any behavior. The question is, why? So, if, for example, you're an eight, then by competing and winning, that gave you power okay. and made you less vulnerable, right? Right. So, so, the why they do it, you know, whereas with the three, they want the applause. They want people to applaud them. To the eight, it's really not about getting applause. It's about, maintaining control and power and 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 you know the eight wants to feel life you know the eight the passion is called lust and it's not necessarily sexual lust but it's that intensity of life you know the eights have more energy than the other types (laughs) and and they they want to feel alive and they want to feel power in whatever way that is and so eights are also obviously very competitive it's funny because there's a big debate in the Enneagram community about which type Trump is, you know, and and the two strongest guesses that people have are three and eight. Yeah. And, you know, when they're arguing for three, they're looking at how pompous he is and how much he's always saying, I'm the best, I'm the best, I'm the best, I'm the best. I did this better, bigger, bigger, you know, like all this pompous, like look at me, look at me, applaud me, applaud me. But when they say eight, it's because of his, you know, absolute just he just says what he wants to say, let the chips fall where they may. Whereas a three is like a political chameleon, you know, the three doesn't want conflict or anything like that. They just want to get to the top. Um, You know, he acts very eight-ish in his bullying and his vengeance and, you know, things like that. But then eights usually don't care what people think about them the way that he does, right? So I'm going to just take this moment to explain a couple of potential things. One is that um, we can, we will pick up overlays, like these are nine human dilemmas. They're nine human existential, um, egoic structures. And so we're all gonna have all nine to some degree anyway, number one. Number two, the way that the Enneagram works, every type automatically has a very interesting relationship with the type before them and the type after them when you're going clockwise around the circle. So as an eight, you have what's called a a seven wing and you have a nine wing. And what that really means is that your type is sitting right between the issues of the seven and the nine. The eight is almost born out of the tension between what's going on at seven and what's going on at nine. So eightness is automatically related to sevenness and to nineness on the spectrum of this human dilemma, right? So, so a lot of people have a really close relationship with one of their wings. So people will say I'm an eight with a seven wing, which means I'm like really, really an eight at the core, but I'm a lot like a seven. So like me personally, I'm a seven, but really strong eight wing. I don't have the psychology of an eight, not really ever about power and, and vulnerability. The psychology is all seven. But my behaviors and my energy patterns and all those kinds of things are really eight ish. So it's like I'm sitting very close to the eight on the circle, but psychologically I'm a seven. So it's kind of like where you're sitting on that circle has a lot to do with how much your one or the other of your wings is going to play into it. And a lot of people talk about the wings as your shadow and your ally. A lot of people talk about switching wings, like you might really rely on one wing. Like I had no fear growing up. I Six wing, what's a six wing? I, I did not know fear, but I had a very strong eight wing. After all kinds of life crises, I suddenly have, you know, much more of a six wing, <laughs> like a lot more fear and paranoia in my life. So you can switch the emphasis of the wings through the, throughout your lifetime, but you're always going to have a relationship with those two types. Then the next thing is, if you've seen the Enneagram, there's lines cutting across all over the place. Yeah. The two types that you are connected to by a line are opposite to your type in one way or the other. So for as an eight, you're connected to five. Five is completely opposite to eight in the sense that it's very introverted, it's very withdrawn, it's very withholding, it's very um, protected like a tortoise inside of its shell versus the eight, which is just like, I'm big, come at me, come on. You know, like it's a instead of expansion, there's this contraction. There's a real opposite there. You're also connected to two. And two is that openly loving, very heart oriented, very lovey, lovey, um, you know, sweet under wants to be the wind beneath the wings of people, quite opposite of the eight who doesn't want to be vulnerable and wants to be the one that's controlling power, at least for themselves, right? Those are very opposite. So what happens is that as you do your thing, as your number, you'll find yourself zigging over to the five and to the two to try to almost balance yourself back out again. It's like a rubber band, right? Uh-huh. So, and, and kind of roughly, you got to be careful with this, but you'll see it in a lot of books where they'll say that one of those directions is stress or disintegration and the other direction is flow or integration. That's been debunked. Most people say you can go to both under either circumstance, but there is some truth to the idea that one of those directions is one that we go to almost automatically, and that's the one that's typically known as stress. So for eight, going to five. It's like when everything else isn't working and, you know, it's like all bets are off or whatever, the eight will just pull in and be totally introverted and like go into the cave and figure it out. You know, go to their intellect, they'll go to their head and they'll go to that protected spot and, you know, before emerging again and in flow. Where the eight is, you know, feeling magnanimous and pretty good with themselves, they're going to go over to two, and they're going to do what a lot of eights are well known for, which is protecting family and friends and being the, you know, sort of like the very benevolent leader who's strong for everyone and the loving, like the, the like the lion heart, you know, is, it comes out. So people call that the direction of flow, but the eight. But in truth, you could actually go to two in stress, or you could go to five in flow, but you're going to go to two a lot you're going to go to five a lot. Like Those are two positions that if you're an eight, you should be relatively familiar with. Yeah. So every time you know your type, you're already five types <laughs> out of the nine. <laughs> and, but it's a matter of how is it wired? That's really what it's about. It's not about which box do I fit in? It's how is this whole thing wired? And how is this subconsciously driving me so that I can be more cognizant of it? I can be more aware, I can be more awake, and I can be more present. I can be more just true in the moment rather than being run by patterns that I don't even realize are going on. Got it. Yeah.
0: So we're still going through five through seven, right?
1: Yeah, five through seven. Okay, so the little five. The little five, five, um, as I said before, most people believe you're born your type and they have found, not the Enneagram authors, but other scientists have found nine temperaments That babies are born with. And of course, the Enneagram um, crowd has correlated those. (laughs) So the little nine is born with a very hypersensitive temperament where it seems like the world is extremely um, overbearing and intrusive and prickly, you know, like like annoying. And and the five is, you know, trying to protect itself from this, this intrusion. And so they become kind of prickly. And the little five decides that the world is trying to intrude on you and trying to take your energy. And so the the five becomes like a little energizer battery. I have to protect this life force of mine. And I've got to run my life in a way that doesn't allow that flame to be blown out. I can't allow people to steal all my energy. I have to protect myself. And they become, because they're a head type, they start to use their head as the power knowledge is power and so i need to hoard knowledge i need to know i need to figure it out they become the most analytical the most observant the most disconnected like their 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 standard psychological move is to disconnect disconnect energetically from people from situations from emotions from whatever they want to be detached so their move is detach and observe and protect protect my energy and so a lot of people, when they, when they look at shallow books on the Enneagram, they think that the five is the person who's the thinker, the person who's smart, the person who's the scientist, the person who's this. And so they think if they like books, if they like knowledge, if they like information, they must be a five. No, 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 no. Fives tend to do that. Yes. So do a lot of other types. Ones included. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of intellectual people of all nine types. The, the thing that makes you a five is that avarice? It's that withholding. It's that clinging to your energy force and feeling like the world is trying to steal it from you. It's it's that preserving of your energy and thinking that you need to use your head as the way that you navigate the world while you disconnect and hold yourself energetically back. It's a very specific character, and so anyway, the little fives journey or the fives journey is to realize there's no way that that light's going to go out. Like there isn't anything actually to hold on to. It's really not like that. You're not really an energizer battery. And if you actually were to just stay engaged and stay emotionally engaged and socially engaged and and you were to just work through that point where you thought that there was oblivion, you would find out, guess what? It's not there. There is no oblivion. And when they can start to ease up on that self-protection and start staying attached more Frequently, emotionally, and socially, and all those different things, then they can start to blossom in ways that they never allowed themselves to before. So that's another really interesting character. I love fives, Um, and then sixes. Well, I like all the types, but I I have (laughs) one anyway. um, And and you know, seven goes to five, eight goes to five. We both we both love the fives. Um, Anyway, the um, the the six. So the six is the quintessential fear type. The little six's fixation is literally fear and the passion is cowardice. So the little six decided the world is scary. Oh my God. Like you never know what's going to happen next. It's crazy. Like, you know, who knows what's going to happen? Who knows how we're going to get hurt? And they're a mental type. So they start freaking out about it, right? So it's the, it's the birth of paranoia. So the six is a really interesting character because naturally they develop their intuition because of the decision they made, they naturally do have higher intuition than most people. The problem is, throughout their lifetime, how they ever tell the difference between their genuine intuition about something and their paranoia, because they do both so strongly most of the time that unhooking that and figuring that out is the journey for the six, because their mind is so active, and they think of all the worst case scenarios. They get a bad rap, of being um, like negative thinkers, you know, like you need to think positive. They hate that because they want the positive outcome. They're working towards the positive outcome. But they believe that by seeing everything that can go wrong, then they could prevent it. And if they can prevent it, then we'll all have the positive outcome. So they insist on thinking of the negative worst case scenarios and imagining all the things that could go wrong because they believe it is protecting them. And to me, this is one of the most interesting characters because it's one of the hardest ones I've seen to unhook um it, it's It's very hard for them to drop it because it's been so rewarded. It's like if you were paranoid about a job interview or a date and you were worrying and worrying, and because you were worrying, you were taking precautions and doing things and whatever, and then you went through the interview and it didn't it went badly, then you'd be able to say, "See, I was right." right? yeah. But if you went through the interview and it went well, then you'd be able to say, thank God I worried about it and I did all that prep work because that's why it went well. And so either way, your paranoia is reinforced by absolutely everything that happens in your life.
0: Is that have so- you, So have you, read, have you read the book, um, The Untethered Soul by uh, Michael Singer? So it's, yes. really, it's, it's really interesting because when you describe the six, it's almost like you're describing the voice inside the head in the similar way to Michael Singer, right? Yeah, and he, he says, says, "Put it, takes, it on the couch." It takes both sides, right? <laughs> exactly. It takes both sides. It says, "You know, you did really good," and then, um, "You know, screw you. You're you're a, you're a mess up, right?" And and there's nothing good about you. And so and so the the voice the voice takes both sides, and that's exactly what it sounds like you're you're talking well, about think, there. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And
1: I think all nine types have a version of a voice. Definitely, some types have more obvious voices than others i would say one and six have the most obvious you know sort of like inner chatter but a six would usually say that what they have is an inner committee (laughs) they literally have whereas a one has a very punitive clear inner critic whereas the six it's not really about inner criticism it's about all the things that could happen and all the things we need to think about so just like remember how i said in each of the triads one of the types kind of like does flaming, flaming strong, the other one kind of does the opposite, and the one in the middle is kind of like asleep to the issue. Nine is asleep to anger, three is asleep to emotions, and six is asleep to mental power. They're very aware that their mental mind is going all the time, but they don't trust it. They don't have a strong sense of, I'm a mental type, therefore I know. Yeah. What they have is, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yes, but yes, but yes, but no, but no, but you know, it's this, it's this constant d- uh, doubt. Doubt is a huge feature of the six. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard for them to, like I said, get in touch with what is their true and genuine intuition. And what is this paranoid thought process? And so I think, I think books like The Untethered Soul are fantastic for sixes because they need to do what he says. And and imagine that that, you know, that that voice is sitting over on the couch saying all of that. Right. Then you You know, it's like, you have to, you have to, you have to take away its power, not, not give it so much, you know, credence in one's life. Very similar to the, to the one. But sixes are interesting too, because if they, if they like, for example, get into faith, if they suddenly became very, very faithful and they believe in God and they believe that God is protecting them, and, or, or if they fall into, um, I would say, a cult mm-hmm. or something where some strong leader somehow convinces them that if they just follow, that they will be safe, a six a lot of times would be so happy to get rid of all of that thinking that they just throw that out the window and blindly trust. And so then, again, you talk about Enneagram tests. Then they're like, they don't test as a six because, <laughs> because they think that they have total faith. You know, they, they, don't, they don't recognize the underpinning of all of that, which was that doubt and that paranoia. So they have to go another layer deeper if they have inserted something that gives them faith, yeah. you know. But, but what they need to just do is recognize that the big theme here all through their life is definitely about doubt and faith fear and courage, you know, like that's, that's the theme. And then they can kind of go from there. But a lot of sixes will say, I don't know. I just don't have that much doubt. You know, I just believe, I just believe whatever it is that they've decided to believe. Um, We also have a counterphobic six, which is very different from most sixes in that rather than acting fearful, the counterphobic six is like, I can't handle fear. And so they just charge right into whatever it is that they're scared of. (laughs) So, They act very much like eights, um, but they don't have the solidity, the calmness, the let the chips fall where they may. You know, they're fueled by that fear and paranoia, but they're running around acting like eights, you know, sort of like challenging all their fears. Uh, So a lot of people think Trump is a counterphobic six. Let's throw that one out there. (laughs) Um, But I was, let me, I'll finish the seven and then I'll go back to why why it's not so easy to tell one type sometimes with somebody. So the seven, a little seven. The little seven decided that the world is very restrictive. Like the world just wants to grab you and calm you down and restrict you from doing what you want. The little seven is very keen on getting what they want. The, the passion is called gluttony and the fixation is um, about planning, planning all of the positive possible future potential goodies that are out there. So the seven is like this very gleeful little kid who wants to just go out and explore the world and have the world and have fun and have everything be great and wonderful. And the world just seems to want to restrict you and tie you down and and not give you what you want. And so they become kind of similar to the eight, a little bit of a rebel. But rather than it being about power, you know, they don't really feel like there's enemies and stuff like that out there. They just feel like there's chains, there's restrictions, there's cages, and stuff like that. So they can be rebellious against the rules if it feels like a, a chain, not because somebody's trying to have power, you know. So the seven and the eight have a very interesting relationship. They're both assertive types. Three, seven, and eight are the most assertive um, and the most competitive. Three, seven, and eight are all, but the seven's usually doing it for the fun. It's like, hey, this is cool. This is fun. Let's see if we can win. You know, the eight wants to have power and control and the three wants to get the applause. So they're, they're all doing it for different reasons, but they can, they can look alike in a lot of ways. So the seven's journey is recognizing that this deep inner hunger isn't real seven and four actually there's so much depth to the enneagram we don't have time to get into but seven and four actually have a similar um, childhood wounding and so they both feel utterly abandoned and you know rejected to, to fend for themselves but because the four is a emotional type they actually never forget that pain and it becomes part of their identity and they they seek to explore it and understand it their entire life the seven being a mental type They're not wired to be an emotional type, they're wired to be a mental type. So they just kind of like, you know what, that does not feel good. Let's lock that in a titanium vault. Never look back and let's just have fun. Like let's replace it. So a seven is kind of like a four on Prozac. (laughs) Like they don't recognize that there's any depression under there or they don't recognize that there's any pain under there. But that's actually the source of it. And how it shows up for the seven is a hunger. So when the seven sees something that they want, it literally feels like it would be death if they didn't get it. Because the little seven decided that they could starve. The little seven is a baby whose mother is not coming with the milk. So they have a deep, you know, the the five, six and seven, the head types, their core emotion is fear. So the seven doesn't really recognize fear or feel fear. What they just feel is a zest for life. But what they don't realize is that's really a fear of starvation and complete deprivation of any sort of love and support. And that's locked in a vault that they don't ever want to look at. And it, and it manifests as, oh, I love this. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love this. Oh, I love that. And it's next, 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 next. They can never fill themselves up more. They can never fill themselves up enough because they're filling a void that they're not even acknowledging. Yeah. and. So all of their zest for life is really just a cover up and for a seven to get to a point where first of all, they realize that and can trace it back. And second of all, they can actually allow themselves to sit in the pain and the horror and the suffering of being a completely unwanted, unloved child, like actually get that and get that they actually feel that yeah. and start to heal that and realize that that's an illusion. I mean, it was never true. But somehow that's what the one—that's what the seven uh, concluded, and so to to get back to that initial wounding and be able to deal with it and work with that starts to calm down that gluttony. I mean, as a funny story, when I first learned the enneagram a long time ago, they didn't have Amazon.com, but they had Barnes and Noble superstores. <laughs> yeah. I, I I do seven in five world. In other words, my gluttony is books. I have over 9,000 books and they're all cataloged. I've got them all cued. I know where they all are. I'm, I'm like obsessed with books. Can never have enough books. And so I would walk into Barnes and Noble as an exercise. Not only would I not buy a book, which you can ask my husband, there's no time I ever walked into a Barnes and Noble without spending a minimum of a hundred dollars ever in my lifetime. Um, so I would do it, like I'd walk in there, not buy a book, but not only not buy one, I would go find one that I thought, was the book of the century that I had to have, the knowledge that I had to have, and I would be so obsessed with this book, put it back on the shelf and walk out of the store without buying it. And this might sound crazy, but when you understand how real the nine structures are for the nine types, then you have to think from what it would be from your perspective to understand what it is for a seven. I would go out and sit in my car, and just watch myself, just feel the unbelievable panic and, and pain and, and drama that my system would go through in not getting
0: that book. It sounds like CBT, like, right? It's, it's really, it's really what, 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 what people do in, in cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, yeah. It's like you were doing your like, own CBT. It's like, how could this possibly matter? Yeah. But when you start to realize that it's,
1: it's just pointing to something. Right. And, and gets you in touch with it so so now we've done all of them I was just going to say that the other reason why besides the fact that you have the two wings and you have the two line points which are going to be very familiar positions to you in in working with your own but the other thing is that some people my friend Catherine Favre um, developed a theory that most people have endorsed but I got to tell you a lot of people don't endorse so out in the Enneagram world there's people who do not believe in this theory but Catherine believes that Ichazo, the original guy who mapped on the types, did believe in this, and she believes that she has enough um, evidence to prove that this is true. And the theory is called tri-type. So tri-type is the is the theory that of the head t- of the gut types eight nine and one, and then the head the the image types two three four and then five six seven. You actually have one in each. In other words, your enneagram type is one that leads. So let's say, let's just throw out there that you're an eight. So let's yeah. say you're an eight. So you lead with eight. That would say that you also have one of the two, three, four. Like you, it's you are, two. you have a two or oh, three or a four. I have a in, two. And then, and then you, I have a two and a seven. And a seven. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's called your tri-type. Yeah. That's called your tri-type and Catherine believes that people who have the same tri type even though they have a different order you know cuz she still believes that you have one enneagram type i mean for sure that's the one you got to work on like that's still the key there's one type that you have to work on and everything else will come as a result of that yeah. but she believes that you have these other two and they do very strongly influence sort of like the type of 8 that you are so she believes that an 827 and a 7 two eight are actually a lot more similar than one eight with another eight yeah she she believes that the tri-type brings the most distinction then the other theory that's really popular right now um, comes from originally naranjo so ichazo mapped out the enneagram naranjo is the one who put all the meat on the bones ichazo just put a passion a fixation and a subtype that's it just like words like there's not very much meat on the bones Naranjo, the psychoanalyst um, who just passed away just literally months ago, um, was the one who who fleshed out all the meat of the bones, basically, of the modern Enneagram. So he says, like, Chazo was like the father, I was like the mother (laughs) that birthed, you know, the the basis of it all. So Naranjo is the one who believes that you have three subtypes from the self press, social, sexual, instinct imbalance. And So Beatrice Chestnut, her book called The Complete Enneagram, is the one who lays out Ichazo's 27 types, you know, the three types of each of the nine Enneagram types. That's the book. Ichazo has one in Spanish, but unless you read Spanish, you've got to go to Beatrice Chestnut's Complete Enneagram. They believe that it's the subtype that makes the most difference in how, you know, each of the Enneagram types shows up. So there's a lot of different theories out there. There's a there's a huge crowd of scholars that have been working on the enneagram for 30 something years. And you know, this is what we do at the IEA conferences every year: is we we put out these theories, we debate the theories, and we get you know everybody's position on them and whatnot. It's it's a it's an evolving field. But what's happened recently with the publishing of the Road Back to You, which was published by Zondervan, which suddenly who put was the the road back to you by ian khan was published by zondervan and zondervan is a christian publisher up until that point in time the vast majority of the christian world believed that the enneagram was of satan right and so they completely never touched it and so that kept it out of a huge purview of the american public and all of a sudden, when Ian Cron wrote The Road Back to You, and it didn't have the word Enneagram in the title, I don't know, but Zondervan published it, and, and Susan St- Suzanne Stabil, whose husband is a preacher, um, she was the one who taught Ian Cron. Ian Cron himself has said that his, his background in the Enneagram is not very deep, actually. Right. He just kind of learned it from Suzanne, but he was so impressed by it that he wrote that book. And so suddenly you have a book that's just touching the surface of the Enneagram, that gets released to the Christian world, and all of a sudden, churches across America are teaching the Enneagram. <laughs> And, and I mean, it, it's an influx that we were not expecting. And in the last several years, all of a sudden, the Enneagram world has, has become, I don't know, this crazy world because you have these scholars and these known teachers who have been, you know, orbiting each other and working together. And, you know, there's a community that has been advancing the Enneagram for 30 years. And then you have this new wave where everybody who reads a book is now an Enneagram expert and it's turned it into kind of a parlor game of, you know, like, which type are you? And if yeah. you're this type, you want this kind of Halloween treat. And so the, the, the real Enneagram world is reeling, wondering, do we care? <laughs> you know, <I> don't know. <laughs> what do we do about that? I don't know. Um, but All there's publicity
0: this, is good publicity.
1: Yeah, you know, what the <laughs> heck. But, yeah. but definitely, you'll find that there's a lot of people who think they know the Enneagram, but what they really only know are some boxes with some behaviors connected to some types and they don't even know what a passion and a fixation and the subtypes and you know like they don't even know anything about the enneagram
0: well it sounds Uh. to me like there's just a whole lot more than than you know you can get in in an hour or an hour and a half i mean we're already you know we're already bumping up against an hour and a half it's gonna be a great episode i'm super excited about it um but what i wanted to ask you is that you know number one where can people take a test that's going to help them. I mean, are you, do you recommend the, the in cron site or do you recommend somewhere else? Do you have a test that people can take?
1: Well, so yes. um, By the time this airs, I should have, I already have, it's there already. So my site that has a test is called successstyle.com. Okay. and I'm, I'm gearing that toward, you know, your, your, strength, if you will, it's like, this is how you succeed in life. So I'm not gearing it towards the psychological side of things, because my background is basically business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I, I want to use the Enneagram in leadership and in sales and in marketing and team building. And you know, like I work with corporations. So I, it, for, for the purposes of that test, you, it, I think it's probably as accurate as any other free test that's out there. And you will get a report uh, you know, somewhat about your type, and a little bit of an overview of the enneagram in general, and um, you will get on my list. And I'm going to start doing a lot more outreach. In fact, I'm going to I'm starting a podcast with Michael Goldberg, who wrote the book Getting Your Boss's Number and the Nine Ways of Working. And we're going to do a business-oriented enneagram podcast very soon. Oh, great! But anyway, so so that's that's a free test. Um, another free test is actually at Eclectic energies.com and I can't vouch for everything else that's on that site that guy's got a collection of all kinds of weird stuff but he's got a pretty good Enneagram test on there Uh, he's got two of them but Eclectic Energy yeah
0: I I think that you know we want to we want to keep it keep it simple and so we're going to go ahead and recommend your site I think because we want to keep it simple Um, the other question I wanted to ask you is once once somebody finds out their type, so like I took Ian Cron's test and I found out, you know, the first time I took it, I came out of one. I was like, this doesn't make sense to me that I don't really identify with that. I took it again. I came out an eight, you know, but obviously after talking to you, you know, I, I mean, I have a, some perfectionistic type of characteristics, whatever, but the, 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 the thing is, is that we get a type and then you said, you know, there's, there's work to be done. So what's the next step once we, once we get, you know, we understand that our type is, you know, I, I, you know, I'm an eight, I've, I've, I'm assertive and, and, you know, I want things my way and I want to control everything. And it's, you know, fuck you if you don't do it my way. And you know, that sort of thing, right? That's, that's me. So how do I, what's the next best step for growth? Personal. So growth? yeah. So to me the
1: best book for someone to start the, the journey. Um, it's called the Wisdom of the Enneagram. Okay, by my, my, by my teachers Don Riso and Russ Hudson. So Don passed away years ago, but Russ is still at the forefront of Enneagram, and I think anything Russ Hudson does, you got to do. He's he's phenomenal. But that book is very unique in that it really does a good job of not only giving someone a pretty good overview, but also very much honoring you know the depths of all these different aspects. And then the second book that I would recommend is actually Beatrice Chestnuts, uh, The Complete Enneagram, because Russ doesn't really cover very much in The Wisdom of the Enneagram about how those three subtypes can play out very, very differently. And if somebody's having a hard time figuring out which type they are, like if you really see the depth of the Enneagram and you still can't figure out which type you are, then it's probably because you're one of the counter types. Because of each, each of the types has a counter type. Yeah. And so it's almost like that was what's driving it, but then for some reason you decided to thwart that and, and your instinct is thwarting the drive itself. And so you have this very conflicted oppositional thing going on. And so each of the types has a counter type and the complete Enneagram will show that to you. So you might say, oh, I get it. I see why I didn't think I was a seven. It's because I'm not this selfish hedonist. I'm this out to save the world person that everybody thinks is a two. Well, that's a social seven. You know, the social seven looks a lot like a two. And, you know, a self pressed three can look a lot like a one and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of these look-alike things that come out in the complete Enneagram. So I would recommend the wisdom of the Enneagram first. And then I would recommend the complete Enneagram second.
0: Now, my last question for you is can can we go around from one to nine? And can you give me an example of a famous person of each type?
1: Oh, you have no idea how much I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> Just... I'm, I'm actually like the worst person in the world for that because I'm 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 on record everywhere railing against that particular. For almost every type, like, like, that's a good question. If I could think of one that nobody would dispute, people debate it, you know? So like, if I say this person's a two, there's
0: another famous Enneagram teacher who will say that person's not a two. So here's what we'll and, do. We'll say, this is in your opinion and mm-hmm. what you've seen, how the, how this person has acted, this is your, this is the type you expect. So, so let's just pick some people. Oprah. She,
1: she's hotly debated. Some people think she's a two and some people think she's a three. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, again, I, I would really rather not do that. What I will do, I'll go around the nine and I'll give you sort of a caricature okay. of, of each Okay. okay that's fair. So rather than a famous person because famous people are typically t- saying what their handlers tell them to say. Or they've played a movie role, or they've got some goal in mind. You know, you never know why they're acting the way they're acting. It may not be their true motives, right? And it, it's very hard to say. And, and how and their again, public you're, persona you're, is may not right. be what, what the and real you're thing is. And are looking at their behavior, yeah. rather than you know sort of like what's sure. really going on under the Okay, so I
0: think that's fair. So let's go around and type one. Type
1: concerned. one, no matter what, is going to be somebody who's very kind of uptight. They're going to be somebody who has high standards. They're striving for continuous improvement it really matters to them that things get better and so you can kind of just think of those type of almost a school marm you know caricature um but again the subtypes can elizabeth can warren <laughs> high, high standard what's that elizabeth what's that? warren you know what again not not completely i know i wouldn't say 100 percent say that but some do think she's a one yes okay okay so um And a type two. So a type two is a charming, they're always charming. They're charming. They're seductive. They're very relationship oriented. They definitely care about the relationships in their life. And they're a person who strives to be caring and helpful. Okay. So like a sweetheart, like America's sweetheart with a lot of energy behind it, which is different than the nine who's just doing it because they happen to be there. But a two is doing it on purpose. Meg Ryan. (laughs) Um, Okay. I'll I'll give you that one. (laughs) (laughs) so, <laughs> the, three, the three is a pragmatic, definitely pragmatic, very competitive, hardworking achiever that focuses on achieving success in roles and goals.: Bill get Gates. It done. Oh, most people think he's a five. really: Yeah, so there's another interesting thing about Enneagram, um, like you know we're not looking at the symbol, but if you take the symbol and you make every possible set of three triangles then you're going to end up with these different relationships that exist. And um, I, we don't have time to get into that. But yeah. one, three, and five are all what we call the competency types. Okay. So they all, you know, ha- get, making sure that they do their job well is is makes up a big part of their self-esteem. That's true for one, it's true for three, and it's true for five. So would you
0: say that like most professional athletes then would might be a... A three.
1: Yeah, and most you know any celebrity with a big, huge smile on their face yeah. who wants to grab the camera every time they can—that's definitely. Or a Michael
0: Phelps, perhaps.
1: Um, I actually don't know him very well, so yeah. I mean, I know who he is, but I I wouldn't even guess about his type. Sure. Okay, so then the type four. Type fours are always deep, very sensitive. They're very individualistic, um, introspective. You might say they're moody. You know, they have a lot of kind of highs and lows, and and more than any other type their mood will affect their performance, you know, because it's it's the most true thing for them. So they can't ignore their moods and their emotional responses to things. So in a way, they're one of the most emotional types. The other really emotional type is a two, but a two is usually very positively emotional, whereas the four tends to be a little bit more on the moody
0: emotional side of things. I'm trying to think Um, of a famous person who might be a four, like a Joel Osteen maybe. Johnny Depp. I mean,
1: (laughs) but a lot of people might say he's a five too. So again, there's a, so they strive to express themselves uniquely and authentically. Okay. Then the five, the five is a detached withdrawing analyst type. So they're definitely not this really engaged person. They're more of a detached person. They gather knowledge, they protect their energy. So above all, don't surprise a five. They don't like surprises. They want to be able to predict and manage their life and their expectations, expectations of other people. So they tend to be the most obviously introverted. Like it's pretty hard to imagine an extroverted five. Although supposedly a lot of um, rock music stars could be fives. They just put on this whole persona. You know, it's like a puppet running running the show out there. But really, they're very, very conserving of their energy. So the six is an authority-questioning, troubleshooting loyalist. Like those are the most, you know, they question authority all the time. So do eights, but eights are doing it more from a a bravado stance, whereas the six is like, "Mm, can they be trusted? Can they not be trusted? Um, But they're very troubleshooting. They're always going to be finding all the things that could go wrong so that we can try to make sure that they don't. They're very loyal. One of the reasons why sixes have a hard time making decisions is because they know that once they do, once they commit, they're going to be committed. They're going to be so loyal and they don't want to be wrongly loyal. They don't want to be wrongly committed. So they're very it's very hard for them to commit, but they're very much interested in being committed. Um, and they're always looking at what could go wrong and how to prevent that. Obviously, the seven is usually a pretty enthusiastic. That's a word that I think any every seven deserves the word enthusiasm. Enthusiastic, very future-oriented, very visionary, uh, focused on positive outcomes of what's possible. So they're always looking at the potential. They're always looking at what could be. They're always thinking of the next, 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 next great future yeah. and all the options. They hate to be trapped. Um, the eight is a tough, no nonsense, very straight shooting. It's a protector. It's somebody that we can count on to protect us because they know how to defend. They know how to challenge. They know how to fend off a challenge. They know how to be powerful and protective. Um, and the nine is usually a very laid back character. They're they're almost like uh, almost a little fuzzy. You know, the eye the eye gaze is usually not quite so. You know, fierce. It's it's very fuzzy. They're an accommodating, very easygoing, comfort-seeking, harmony, peace. They just want to avoid conflict. So they're not going to be extremely opinionated. They're not going to be standing up. They're just going to be kind of going along. And the fun thing about nines is that if somebody else is having a conflict, the nine is a great mediator. They can see this side. They can see that side. They can try to bring people together. No problem. But if somebody tries to have a conflict directly with the nine the nine just sort of disappears because everything in their whole makeup was designed to never have conflict. So they don't even understand how it could be happening because they never intentionally get into conflict. But usually they're just very easygoing, um, affable people that most people get along with great. Wow. So that's kind of an
0: overview. Yeah, celebrities, I don't know. <laughs> okay, well that, that's fine. So I, you know, I think um, I do wanna be mindful of time. We've been going for quite a while. It's gonna be a long episode. And uh, thanks for everybody who stays to the end here. Uh, Stephanie, thanks, thanks so much for, for being a part of the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm sure that there's going to be a ton of questions, questions for you. And, and um, you know, we'll probably have you back to just to answer some questions. Yeah, that'd be great. And in fact, we didn't
1: really cover how potentially menopause you know, yeah. <laughs> gets affected by the Enneagram, um, you know, having gone through menopause myself and, and some of what you brought up earlier about weight loss and stuff like that. It, once people have uh, kind of a grasp of the types and we've talked about their issues, we could do another one literally talking about how those kinds of issues
0: creep into life changes. You yeah, know, that's huge. Yeah. So um any questions that you have uh, for Stephanie, um we can if you send them to me at drgordon at menopausemovement dot com and we will that's DR Gordon, not Dr spelled out, but it's drgordon at menopause dot com. And we'll have Stephanie back to answer your questions. It'll be awesome. All right. All right. Thanks so much, Stephanie. You're welcome. Did you know that menopause is not a medical condition? Most doctors don't know this either. I like to say that menopause is the privilege of a long life. And to really take hold of our lives in menopause, we have to unlearn what society and the medical establishment has told us about menopause. Thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement.